Welcome back to the Just Say Rad podcast. I am Raddy Ann Simon Play, film critic for CTV's Your Morning and regular contributor to Now Magazine in Toronto. And today we're going to be talking about Paul Thomas Anderson's latest movie, Phantom Thread. Now, Phantom Thread just recently scored a surprising six Oscar nominations, including Best Picture and Director. And it's surprising not because the movie doesn't deserve those nominations. I mean, it's, it's my favorite movie of 2017, and it certainly, I think, deserves much more than that. But it's surprising because, you know, it's the Oscars. And we discussed in my previous podcast that, you know, I just did not expect Phantom Thread to make much of an impression with the Academy. Especially since Paul Thomas Anderson's last two movies, The Master and Inherent Vice, they both only scored two nominations apiece in smaller categories. But here we are, six nominations later, which means a lot of people are going to actually see this movie, and they're probably going to be wondering what to make of it. Uh, so I brought in the big gun for this episode. My guest today is fellow film critic and author Adam Naiman. Adam is a contributing editor for the Cinemascope magazine. He also writes for The Ringer, Reverse Shot, Sight and Sound, and Little White Lies. Uh, and he actually also graduated from the same MA Cinema Studies program as I did at the University of Toronto. So we go back almost a decade. Uh, Adam is actually the film critic who recruited me into the Toronto Film Critics Association that many years ago. And he's also my neighbor, which means he walked five minutes to get to my house. And here he is, Adam Naiman. You can sew almost anything into the canvas of a coat. When I was a boy, I started to hide things in the linings of the garments. Things that only I knew were there. Secrets. Good morning. Will you have dinner with me? Today we're talking about Phantom Thread, and uh, one of the things, that, uh, the, uh, besides writing, Adam also teaches courses, and uh, a, a lot of your courses you feature, I think a lot of your courses, you feature the master. Well, I've done lectures on the master specifically, um, uh, like, like long lectures on that film, not at, at U of T or for accredited universities, but for kind of later life learning and mm. adult learning. I find it that's a movie that lends itself pretty well to like a nice <laughs> two-hour explication with clips, but I also use the master in my business film class because I talk about Megan Ellison mm. and sort of the phenomenon of the angel investor and the the, the, the sort of cash that's necessary to to realize a film like that yeah. and the unique place that Megan Ellison, you know, has in the American film financing landscape and, you know, uh, Annapurna Pictures obviously, you know, responsible as well for Phantom Threads. So, yeah, exactly. um, you know, she's, she's, she's pretty connected to Anderson's career because the master, given the the topic of Scientology and, and whatever else was a very hard movie to to put together right. financially. So someone like Ellison, who has financial independence and creative independence and a real soft spot for these challenging directors, was, was instrumental in getting it finished. Yeah. So I used the clip, actually, where... Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman as Lancaster Dodd is going around bilking <laughs> rich, rich society ladies out of their money. Yeah. I'm not suggesting Megan Ellison is one of them, no, no, but yeah. just showing that you know one of the things Anderson is often making movies about is about uh, in There Will Be Blood and in The Master to to some extent people who have these big ventures that they kind of need to have financed and they're looking for patronage. Mm -hmm. I mean, you even see that in Phantom Threat. Absolutely, Daniel Day Lewis's character, all his clients are rich, elderly white women. Are, are, are rich, wealthy women. Yeah. It's just very funny that the House of Woodcock is <laughs> the 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 erect House of Woodcock yeah. only stands by the contributions of these the the, the these women who he right. services as as clients and as patrons. So. 
you know, that's one of a, of a dozen, um, you know, thematic connections that you could make. Well, yeah, I mean, we, we were talking about the Master and Phantom Thread as companion pieces, and we're going to dig into that further. I just wanted to preamble why I specifically wanted to talk about Phantom Thread right away, right now. Um, so it was just nominated for six Oscars, which I don't, a few of us saw that coming. Yeah. Um, and I recently took Sophia to the theaters uh, to see it, finally. And, uh, you know, so we were at the theater, and two women at the end of the movie came to us just flabbergasted they were like did you like you know not knowing who we were they were just like did you like that movie and when i said yeah i love this movie this is my third time watching it they were just shocked and then i had to go through kind of like they were like why why and i had to, like in 10 minutes i had to try and summarize this movie and it made a lot more sense to them after that and i realized this is what a lot of people are going to need so with in terms of this podcast this is a podcast for people who have already seen Phantom Thread, because we're going to go right into all the spoilers and everything, okay? Right. So, like, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping this is so a I should go, So I should go watch Phantom Thread finally. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. Come back. Exactly, and then, and then have this conversation. Yeah. yeah. Um, but so, yeah, like, in terms of this being a companion piece of the master, I mean, there's, like, I, mean, I don't even know where to begin, right? I mean, we, uh, one of the first scenes, when we first had a conversation, when we first walked out of the screening, the very first screening, like, like more than a month ago, uh, you mentioned the companion piece thing. I mentioned, oh, yeah, the the processing scene in the master is just like the measuring scene right. in um, in Phantom Thread. Well, well, one way to maybe get into that, which isn't to say get into it then get right back out of it, but it's something funny that the film does, is there's a tendency in criticism, obviously, to cling to a, a, a form of auteurism and sort mm -hmm. of suggest the idea of intention and control. And mm -hmm. when you see a movie made by a very controlling filmmaker but a very controlling person to sort of intuit a self-allegory or mm -hmm. a, a, a self-portrait, Anderson certainly likes these kind of commanding personalities and these guru figure characters, right? I mean, Tom Cruise in Magnolia mm. and Lancaster Dodd is quite literally a cult right, leader. Right. There's even a cult of personality around Daniel Day-Lewis in There Will Be Blood. But when I watched Phantom Thread, what I thought was interesting was you don't really see Reynolds make anything. <laughs> he sketches yeah. and he draws and he directs, but the labor is all female. Yeah. And, you know, all these all these hands that don't belong to him. And actually in the pivotal moment where the dress has to be rescued for, for 9 a.m., all he really does is collapse on the dress and ruin <laughs> it, and then these women have to fix it. All of which makes me think that trying to talk too much about this as a movie about how an artist works with his material or with his metier, I think the movie undermines that. Yeah. I, I think the movie, to some extent, is satirizing or critiquing this idea of directing yeah. and of control. Yeah. You know, I think it's very much about the control freakery, but I think Anderson is sort of suggesting that a movie is something that's made with other people's labor and other people's efforts and that sometimes the person who's directing it is really actually quite distanced and and detached and unhelpful in that right. process and when you look at the metaphor of the phantom thread itself that the um the name sewn into the lining mm -hmm. i mean in the movie that's a designer label for for film it works the same way as a kind of branding mm -hmm. i'm not sure that anderson is taking his branding or his idea that there are themes and ideas he's going to force on this material i'm not sure he's taking that all that seriously yeah. i think he's kind of making fun of it well you know a funny aside to like what you were saying in terms of like um taking credit for this work when other people are doing it it's interesting that anderson is supposedly the cinematographer yeah. of this movie because i mean there was no 
cinematographer, yet he was still working with all these uh, assistant cameramen and such that were working the cameras. And he refuses to take credit as cinematographer because he's like, oh, it's really just them. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's just an aside to like what Daniel Day-Lewis does. But uh, like okay, you were talking about like this allegory for the filmmaker and tortured artist or such like that, right? Like, and obviously that is actually what I, I wrote about in the 500 words that I wrote about in Now Magazine or in the, in the five minutes that I had on television when I talked about this movie. I, like the, the, the easiest point to go to to talk to, to convince people to see this movie is this is a movie about toxic masculinity. This is a movie about directors like Alfred Hitchcock and Stanley Kubrick, who, who, who Paul Thomas Anderson is referencing in this movie. Uh, and this is a movie of, I mean, those men happen to have, you know, a history of treating their women uh, I don't know, poorly, right. to say the least, right? Um, well, the, well, the two big Hitchcock reference points are, are Rebecca and Vertigo, right? Mm. Ne- Psycho as well, in a certain point. Sure, with yeah. Mother. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah I mean that, and that uh, eyeball. And the eyeball through shot, the, yeah. yeah, I mean, that might be the trinity there. I mean, I thought of Rebecca the same way everybody did, mm-hmm. first of all, because... I believe there was a screening where Paul Thomas Anderson literally said, by the way, yeah. Rebecca's important. Well, and it's, I mean, the plot is basically a remake of Rebecca. Or it's very, or, or it has elements that are very close. Right, yeah. And then the vertigo part is obviously the idea of this, uh, you know, trying to remake this woman in an ideal image, except mm-hmm. that it's, and I thought also of a movie that's also very vertigo influence, which is Phoenix, the Christian Petzold film. I mean, mm. Phoenix is more daring and subversive in terms of how it deals with vertigo because it, it, it's like vertigo from Kim Novak's point of view. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, the ma- in, in, in Phantom Thread, I think the point of view is very fluid. It's not fully from either of their point of view. It's inside and outside, both of them at the same time. Yeah. But certainly there is a stubbornness and a resistance to being made into a mannequin or being made into a clothes rack. I mean, and watching it a second time, one thing we could talk about is the necessity of seeing this film a second time. It's mm-hmm. so much clearer and more lucid some of the jokes and some of the setups but she pushes back pretty much from the beginning right and I think some of the reviews have misdescribed it as a movie where it takes her some time to kind of break the spell and not be enthralled to him anymore and it's like no she's pretty resistant from from the beginning she's taken by him and she's very seduced by him and she's very excited at the prospect of being his his whatever but even when he's like, you know, you're not standing the right way. And she's like, well, how else am I supposed to stand? I mean, <laughs> you there, didn't say that. You, did, you yeah, didn't yeah, say yeah. that. That's not what you said. There, yeah. is a, there is a pushback sort of from the yeah. beginning. Well, even like in the, when he's ordering, I think somebody else references as well. When like when he first meets her at the yeah. restaurant, when she hands him a note, it's almost like she's kind of beating him at his own game. Sure. Right? Like and when she's the one that says, hey, this is for my hungry boy. But um, you know, the, the staging in that is so funny because the first thing he sees her do is trip. Right, right. You know, yeah. She stumbles, and I don't know how Vicky. I, I, I was going to say something stupid, like I don't know how she does it. She does it well because she's a very good actress who's mm. well directed. But the blushing, right, right. I mean, it's one of the most like amazing blushes I've ever seen in a movie. Like she's she's very embarrassed, and when then when she comes back, she's starting at that slight disadvantage, which he likes. Yeah, yeah. You know, he likes her being at this slight disadvantage. Plus, there's the disadvantage she's at class-wise. I mean, she's serving him, Mm -hmm. she's a waitress, and he's the customer. But if you notice, too, when he goes to pick her up in the car the first time, I think she... What's the... What's the... She's already... I think moving to get into the car before he's walked around to open the door for right. her, like this old-fashioned chivalry thing. She's kind of past it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's what I mean by multiple viewings. There's so much sort of inference and implication in just the staging and the movement of bodies mm-hmm. and um, you know the, the looks that people give each other. Which the first time you're watching the film, 
may or may not register because to bring back to those two people you saw at the screening, yeah. the film is completely strange. Well, yeah. I mean, we're talking about it in a way where we feel some mastery of well, it because we've thought about it and written about it and talked about it, but it is a strange movie. Mm -hmm. As strange as The Master. Right, exactly. More strange, I think, than There Will Be Blood. Mm -hmm. and That's strange true. in a different way than Inherent Vice, which I think has much less of a popular appeal in its marketing. Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone saw Inherent Vice by accident. <laughs> Phantom <laughs> Thread is a movie, especially with six Oscar nominations, yeah, that yeah. people might see more casually. Exactly. Right? Well, there's a couple of things you said that I want to, like, I don't, I don't want uh, to pass them, let them go no, by. No, no, we'll talk about it. about it all. First of all, like the Hitchcock stuff, right? When, we, when you brought in Vertigo. Uh, and I, so, yeah, like I was mentioning the, hike, the psycho shot, right? The difference between the psycho shot where you see Daniel Day-Lewis looking through a peephole, looking at his woman. Yeah, that's like Norman Bates, and he has this Norman Bates aspect because he's haunted by his mother. But the fact that Vicky Creeps looks back to that peephole and knows she's there, that's the vertigo moment. She's like the Kim Novak who's putting right. on the show for the man and yeah. in control of that moment. And she takes some pleasure in this film in a different way than in Vertigo, because Vertigo has all the subterfuge and the confusion of the suspense plot and you know mm -hmm. she's trying to trick him yeah, yeah i mean in this film i think to some extent she kind of likes being on display right but in that moment she's also just one of many of woodcock's women kind of on display right right i mean that's one of the few scenes in the movie again i don't want to go again too far away because I, I i agree we already brought up some stuff we should come back to yeah, yeah. but that is one of the few moments in the film where the where the critical perception of anderson as this kind of bravura stylist is actually there. Mm -hmm. You know, the camera hovers, right. it floats. It's not all done in one take, but there's a pretty long roving take. Mm -hmm. And then when it is edited, it's syncopated in a very spectacular way. One of the things that I wrote about when I read about the film for Sight and Sound, and that I think about watching it a second time and afterwards, he's almost a different filmmaker. Mm -hmm. Well, than from... from well, certainly would, from the overweening 90s yeah. stuff. I, we should clarify this. Like, me and you are, I think we're both on the same boat where everything that Paul Thomas Anderson has done, Boogie Nights, Magnolia, up until There Will Be Blood, I feel that was warm up. And I think you're on the same page as me. Yeah, I wouldn't even call, I mean, I have major, I mean, who cares what I think? But <laughs> I have, I have significant issues with all the films before There Will Be Blood, except for Heart Eight, mm -hmm. which I like. And, Interesting, but okay. And which is yeah. also, and which is also, even though I know it's the studio's title, yeah. the title of Hard Eight is the first in a series of intentional or unintentional dick jokes in the Paul Thomas Anderson oeuvre. <laughs> uh, it is not hard to read the dick joke into Hard Eight, yeah. uh, then continuing into Dirk Diggler, uh, Respect the Cock. Right. Um, you know, The Master is one of the like truly dick joke filled movies of recent years yeah, beginning yeah. with him jerking off I mean it starts with him and talking crabs. about crabs yeah. um, and you know I think working its way all the way up now to the house of Woodcock which mm. again I mean I'm not trying to giggle and be immature or whatever but like yeah. it's funny yeah, well, and if you read him talk about where the name came from that name just came from him and Daniel Day-Lewis texting dumb shit to each other <laughs> yeah. and being like can we really call this guy Reynolds Woodcock yeah. Which is why then when you want to turn around and do the Hitchcock thing, because it's there. Yeah. Woodcock and Hitchcock and also Alma being Alma Reville, who was uh -huh. Hitchcock's wife and editor. Yeah, yeah. It's all there. Yeah. But that's a kind of postmodern gamesmanship that in some ways is less interesting than the real dramatic, emotional, historical, thematic stuff to the movie. Right, right exactly. But I still laugh at it. Yeah. yeah. It's funny. Well, and, when he, and when he says something like, he says like, Something like, oh, you must come, I insist. Like, 
It's funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, and I don't think it's subtle either. Yeah, no. Well, I mean, the thing is, there's so many things going on in an Anderson movie that sometimes you can't pick up on the jokes because you're just trying to figure out what the hell is going on, right? Well, and, that, and that's what I was sort of... That, yeah. That's where I thought a good place to go might be, which is the the strangeness of it. Mm. The, the absolute confidence that it's made with balanced against the confusion that it's creating in its audience on a first viewing of just... What do these people want? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, okay, in terms of the strangeness of it, and you said, it, I mean, you, you pretty much said that that has been his movie since The Master, right? And it was interesting to me because uh, my previous podcast I did with Norm. Yeah. And, I mean, he didn't care as much for The Master and didn't care as much for Phantom Thread. And he made an interesting comment where he felt like they had, like, ended too soon and then like, they just kept going like he felt that the master climax that the motorcycle scene uh, or like that it should just kept going uh, the movie just kept going where it should have ended there and the same thing with Phantom Thread and I think that's an interesting take in terms of Anderson's movies because if he was a more if he was a more conventional filmmaker I think you, he would have ended there and I know that I felt even when I first watched the master and Phantom Thread I felt like after those points I didn't know where this movie was still going, and I didn't know where this uh, like where where this plot was taking me. And I always feel like that's why that's what makes Paul Thomas Anderson a master himself in filmmaking because he's charting on like he's not doing what you expect him to do. He's taking you to places that you just don't know where you're you don't know where you're headed, and you need that second viewing because after you figured out where you're going, you got you, you have to kind of revisit and appreciate like this guy took you someplace. Well, there's two pieces that I always think of. One is old, and it's Kent Jones writing about Magnolia, and mm-hmm. one is newer, which is Nick Pinkerton in The Point, which is a piece that I think you mm-hmm. read, too. Yeah. And I referenced it in a ringer thing that I wrote on The Master. Jones said something like, Anderson, he was writing about Magnolia, right? Yeah. So he's still writing about a 27-year-old filmmaker and a really, really kind of overweening, obnoxious movie that yeah. even I remember in 1999, like, the affection for Magnolia in a lot of places was grudging. People were like, there's something here, but... Yeah. They don't like it. He said that, like, the guy knows how movies feel, but he's fuzzy about the infrastructure, mm. right? That he can sort of give you a scene or a set piece that is all your movie-going dreams come true of a certain kind. Yeah, yeah. There are people who just don't go for the kind of thing he does at all. They, right. The assertive camera movement or the exaggerated behavior or even just the 70s American cinemanness of it. Yeah, yeah. There are people for whom that just honestly is not appealing and that's fine. And this is a lot for of the, the kind of criticism you could apply to Inuritu. Sure. Oh, well, that would be a longer podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, exactly. but, but, but anyway, for the people for whom that works, yeah. that stuff works like gangbusters. But still, when you look at Boogie Nights or Magnolia, you find yourself being like, but does this hold together? Is there coherence? Mm. I think, and you know, Nick's claim is that whenever Anderson paints himself into a corner, he just flies over the top. Right, right. And so... He builds these movies that up to a certain point are really, really compelling and absorbing and make sense. And then he just goes nuts. Yeah, and flop, frogs fly from the frogs sky. Frogs fly from the sky. Or, or, Phil, or Philip Seymour Hoffman is singing a sea shanty. Or to, Daniel Day-Lewis clobbers someone in the right. head with a bowling pin. Yeah. And, and you know, I'm sympathetic to that view because, I mean, mm-hmm. I think it's, it's fair. It's mm-hmm. rooted in what happens in the movies. But for me, something happened with The Master where I found that... Not only is the movie not too long, mm. I think it can only end where it ends. Right. With that um, sex sequence where, in some ways, he's pushed past all of the 
blocks and the repression and whatever he's felt. And then in other ways, he's sort of just right back to the woman on the beach with someone who, you know, it's either like the attainment of a goal, which is really a kind of dirty joke at the end of the movie where he's like, you know, stick it in, it fell back out. It's like finally (laughs) he's he's having sex with a a girl and he can't even truly perform. And he's using the cause or the processing as a kind of bedroom game, which sort of indicates that he doesn't really believe in it. And then in that last shot, which I just have chills when I think about it, I mean, he's right back to the woman on the beach suggesting he's either found the girl of his dreams or he's going to be chasing this dream girl, this representation of a woman forever. And so when I hear someone say the movie should end on the motorcycle, I think, well, but that robs us of what he compresses in that last moment. Well, that robs us of his stability in the end of the movie, Uh, even as messed up as his stability is. But just it it would rob us of some of the most amazingly... um, What's the word I'm looking for? Some of the most amazingly lucid and suggestive editing and, mm-hmm. and imagery that I think Anderson's ever done. Mm. And I would even say the same thing about about the ending of Inherent Vice, which obviously is done the same way. It's the same basic ending as the book, except when I see, um, you know, Phoenix and Waterston together in the car, it's not a totally convincing image. I'm no. not sure that they're truly together, and we don't really know where they're headed, and there's this weird look of complicity that he gives the audience. I mean, it's a happy ending, but it also has a kind of dreamlike artificiality to it. Yeah. And it's quite, it, 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 it's quite stunning. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Phantom Thread's the one of his movies, by the way, where I don't think he flies over the top. And that comes back to the idea of of it being a more controlled film. Hold on, hold on. Let's go back to like, what do you mean by it doesn't? Don't think he flies over the top because you're saying that in, Master, in the Master Inherent Vice he does. Oh no, I, I just think the argument can be made right, right. that he does. Okay. Like someone looking at Inherent Vice can take the scene where where Josh Brolin comes storming in and sits down and, and they sort of pair each other's yeah, dialogue yeah. and he eats. He becomes Bigfoot for real and eats the stuff well, and leaves. They would just make that argument in Phantom Thread about the mushrooms. Yeah, except that I think in, I think that in Phantom Thread, because it's a melodrama, because its reference points mm-hmm. are not '60s counterculture, yeah. or in The Master, its reference points are not this kind of. Because I mean, when you make a movie that's based in Scientology, anything's on the table right, right, right. in terms of insanity. Yeah, I think in this point, the, the reference points are such that the film is kind of behaved. Mm-hmm. I think it's the way that that insanity manifests within pretty coherent plausible narrative development mm. that's that's fascinating because yeah some people are like oh it's insane with the poisoning and whatever else but it's not the same kind of giant gesture that you have at the end of there will be blood it's mm. not the same thing as philip seymour hoffman breaking into this yeah. maniacal song it is somewhat more quotidian and believable and made romantic Absolutely oh, romantic by the end of the fucking movie. Sure, yeah. although although I find the I find in a way the again the the ends of there will be blood and and master and inherent vice are all romantic just in the sense that this these these relationships are consummated. Right, right. I mean, in the case of there will be blood, it's a very brutal, yeah. uh, homo homoerotic con, you know consummation of brutality. But I mean, the master ends with with you know him and his dream girl, and inherent vice ends with him and his dream girl, right, and yeah. here it ends with her and her dream boy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And the one thing, I mean, I, I don't want to hit you with this and you, you not be prepared to talk about it, but I long talk about the movie with my mom. Uh-huh. Great to talk about this movie with your mom. It's a movie <laughs> very much about mom. In fact, I think that... I don't think I can convince my mother to see this movie, yeah. but that, But, that's you know, thing, yeah. you, you could call this movie Mother with the exclamation mm-hmm. point, not just because it's thematically similar to the Aronofsky, but, I mean, really, you could yeah. call it Mother. But we were talking about 
the framing device of her talking to the doctor. Right. That comes up, I think, four times. It absolutely opens the film. Uh-huh. And it fully closes the film yeah. until that sort of, I take it as an, an out of time and space shot of her, him measuring her for a gown at like yeah, four yeah. in the morning. We've exactly. seen that before. Yeah. That's just like an emblematic shot. Yeah. But those... I want to return to this out of time and space business, by we, the way. We, so yeah. We will. Yeah. But those, those scenes of her talking to this doctor, they are weird. Mm-hmm. Because when he comes to see Reynolds, when Reynolds is sick the first time... Yeah. There is no, hey, let's go talk in the living room. Right, right, right. No, right? but I think it's meant to be the second time. I, I think it, that's what yeah. I mean. I think right. it is meant to be the second time. But then, you know, she's talking to this guy. This other doctor is a strange character. <laughs> he is completely coming on to her when they're at the ski resort. Yeah, and he's yeah, inviting yeah. her out for New Year's. There's a little sexual frisson between yeah. them. He's totally intimidated by Reynolds. Reynolds hates him. I mean, yeah. he's rude to him unduly the second time. In such exquisite... Like, when he, like... Says, didn't I tell you to fuck didn't off? You, to fuck you can't off. tell whether he's like, am I really just casually saying yeah. that again, or am I actually again but telling I mean, you to fuck off? Very hostile. Yeah. And if you listen to the things that she's saying to him, why is she saying these things to a physician? Mm. You know, at the beginning she's like, oh, I think he's the most demanding man I've ever met. I mean, maybe that's something you say if someone's like, oh, you know, your husband who's sick upstairs, what's he like? Yeah. But by the end. She actually sounds like Peggy from The Master. Right, right. She's like, I know that if he dies, he'll be waiting for me in some other life, and I imagine us in the future with, with children. She's talking in these forever mm-hmm. terms. Yeah. Which is why, and, and it's so boring for you know the, the male, white, straight film critic to do this and invoke this filmmaker in particular, but it's why I thought of Kubrick, because... Mm-hmm. The reason I love the end of Eyes Wide Shut so much as a movie about marriage, this yeah. is not to hijack your podcast no, 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 into no. Eyes Wide Shut, but the end of Eyes Wide Shut is so funny because you have Tom Cruise basically walking around with his wife who towers over him yeah. and being like, uh, yeah, we've really been through a lot. Like, I feel really bad and scared. Can we be together forever? It's like the opposite <laughs> of what men stereotypically do. Right, right. He's desperate for this kind of commitment. Yeah. Usually in Kubrick movies, the forever is something different. It's the idea of living forever through your work or living forever through aristocracy or in The Shining. He wants to be in the hotel forever and ever and ever. Here at the end of Eyes Wide Shut, it's quite pathetic. And Kidman does the opposite of the stereotypical wife where she doesn't use the F word forever. She uses the F word for fuck. And she's like, I don't know about staying together forever, but we should probably fuck now and that'll (laughs) fix things. And it's a wonderfully fair movie about marriage in that regard. Yeah. The end of Phantom Thread, she wants this forever. Yeah. And her desires, sorry, I'm not meaning to go on, mm. but I mean, boy, it's what I was talking to my mom about. Her desires are ultimately really submissive mm-hmm. and subservient and conventional, even if she has to take control yeah. to do them. Yeah. She wants in that last image. To stand there yeah. and stand forever yeah. and be measured. She doesn't want to take over the business. She doesn't want to design dresses. Uh-huh. Her fantasy involves being a mother. Her fantasy involves being a wife. Even when the doctor comes that first time, he keeps saying, thank you, Mrs. Woodcock. Yeah, and yeah. she and Cyril answer in sync. <laughs> yeah. She wants to be Mrs. Woodcock. Yeah. You know? She she is not someone like Peggy in The Master who runs the cause no, no. secretly. 
she wants to be his wife and she kind of wants to be his his clothes rack. But also she, his focal point. But his focal point. Exactly. And yeah. so in some ways the, 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 the attempt to read this movie through a really feminist lens or through a really kind of empowered, uh, an empowered female character lens is complicated mm-hmm. in the same way that I think the Reynolds Woodcock character more obviously is subverted by the movie yeah. because he has no strength at all. Well, all for show. It's all for show. Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, you should maybe have someone other than me talk about this because I'm told by my wife that I can't dress myself. <laughs> I mean, his dresses suck. It's a major plot point that he's not happy with one of the clients. With that wedding dress. Oh, okay. And, you know, in, in the other cases, you know, when he gives, what's her name, um, the, 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 the rich woman who's marrying the Dominican, yeah, yeah. he keeps putting her collar up. Yeah, yeah. And it's suffocating her. And he's like, you need to work with me. You need to work with me. And I just look at this poor woman who's obviously got her own problems. I mean, exactly. she's an alcoholic and she's, she's obviously very insecure and, 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 you know, marrying for money and all that. And you see how pissed off that makes Alma. Right, right. Alma hates her because I think in some ways she sees a version of what she's doing in this woman. The idea of sort of just being a, a house of Woodcock right, right, right. sort of, you know, woman. But he, he, he makes this poor woman's collar too high, and it's choking her. And if, when you look at her at the wedding, you see her pulling it down yeah, yeah, yeah. in opposite to what he'd been doing with it. You sort of get the sense that, like, he may not be all that. And that's why in the same way in The Master, you sort of late in the film have these people like Laura Dern coming right. up to Hoffman and being like, by the way, like, we're not doing so well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, when Cyril sort of says, hey, you know, they're going to other. They're going to other designers. They're going to other places. Yeah. You sort of get the sense that maybe his empire is kind of crumbling a bit, and it's not bad luck. Yeah. He's just he's not with it. Speaking about the ending and the dreaminess. First of all, that doctor framing, right? Yeah. Do you think the doctor framing is a bit like the what's her name in Inherent Vice, the narrator that's not really there? Well, it makes me it makes me think that Joanna Newsom. Joanna Newsom, yeah, yeah, like, sure. Like, what's it, Sortilege? Is that her name in the movie? Sortilege, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, like, I mean, because, yeah, she's there, but she's not there, right? And you think that... Because there's so much in The Master and in Phantom Thread that could be a dream, could be a memory, could be real. Like, if you think of The Master, the scenes with Doris, some of them, I don't know if they're memories or they're dreams, you know? Well, the the scenes with Doris, I mean, you know, I can't illustrate it visually because this is a podcast, but, you know... (laughs) That shot of him in his little sailor suit next to her while she looks like she's seven feet tall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The first time I saw the film, I mean, I was at a press screening. I was cackling out loud because yeah. it's it's such a brilliant psychological image. Yeah. He's, all of his experiences with women are dwarfed by this primal scene with this girl next door. Yeah. And she looks like... Uh, she looks like a Navi. She looks like <laughs> Avatar. And, and he's in this little sailor suit. And that's just like a visual... Cue that then lasts through the whole film. Absolutely, yeah. and and you know, I mean, again, we're going down the rabbit hole now, where I sort of said maybe it's not safe to do that, where you don't want to read too, too, too much tourist intention. But as people have pointed out, the girl who Freddie sort of has the tryst with in the cloakroom at the at the department right. store, who sort of offers her her breast to him and has the little pot belly, yeah. and he can't get it up because he's all fucked up. She looks exactly like Vicky Krebs. Um, she looks like I that. Mean, no, no, she, she, she does. Okay. There's a type. I mean, in The Master, all the women are kind of like a mix of Doris and Amy Adams. Okay. Like, they, all the women in his line of sight, even Wynne Manchester, again, funny names. Like, yeah, yeah. the girl who he finally has sex with is named Wynne <laughs> Manchester in England. It's funny. Yeah, yeah. But th- there are all these kind of, like, slightly, slightly um, 
asymmetrical, not super skinny mm-hmm. redheads. Yeah, yeah. And it sort of creates the idea, as you were saying, that the master is very dreamlike. Mm-hmm. But I mean, in this film, I when, as soon as I saw Vicky Kreeps, I sort of thought, well, I mean, I don't know what it's PTA who has a type or if his characters have a type, but that's the, the, right. the that's the type. Yeah. And just to speak more generally now, without this kind of like deep read, but just to maybe just get back into like what are some nice accessible film critics things we can say. <laughs> Vicky Kreep's amazing. She's absolutely amazing. amazing. I mean, like, especially when you keep watching that performance, she is. I, I, I feel I, I'm more captivated by her performance than anything Daniel Day Lewis is doing. Yeah, like Daniel Day Lewis is just putting on a show, and Vicky Kreep's has all the emotion, all this like. She's the sinister one when she needs to be. Yep. She, she she's the driving force of this movie. Well, I think the great, not the, because I think they're all good. I mean, Leslie Manville is mm-hmm. that is a great performance. Yeah. It doesn't carry the movie like Vicky Kreeps no, does. But it's not meant to. But it is a supporting to. performance, right? Within the little sphere yeah. that Cyril occupies in this movie, as a kind of an emissary of mom, mm. and of this weirdly intimate, incestuous, impossible family history, yeah. but also just as a kind of like a, what's the word, like a... Like a chaperone or a or an overseer for for Reynolds and his appetites yeah, and stuff. Yeah. Like she is flawlessly powerful yeah. and scary yeah. and funny and throwing the best shade. Throwing, <laughs> throwing the best. great shade. I mean, as a self-contained little bit of acting, <laughs> she's phenomenal. She's like, I'll go right through you. Is that the line? She yeah, says? I'll go right through you. Yeah, you know, you like, don't want to pick a fight with me. Yeah. You'll end up on the floor. But I mean, okay, I want to go back to that that Doris thing for just a second. Sure, yeah. Um, because okay, like in terms of its dreamlike stuff, there's a thing about with in the master Doris doesn't seem to age. We don't know what age Doris was no. when he left her. She could be a memory, and that could just be his. She could be. That could be how he remembers her from a certain point, and he has not allowed her to age in his memory, and we don't know if that sailor scene actually happened. No, we don't. And stuff, all that Especially because right? it's in the midst of his process. Exactly. Right? So there's all that going on there. In terms of in Phantom Thread, I mean, now this is once again when we were talking about space and time. In terms of Phantom Thread, that final monologue that Vicky Creeps gives to the doctor, doctor. who may be there, yep. um, in that final monologue, she's talking about uh, she's imagining life five years from now. She's talking about all the people from the past, all of them living and existing in this one moment. And then the visuals refer back to that uh, carnivalesque New Year's Eve yeah, scene except where you have history. And now they're slow dancing alone. Yeah, yeah, slow dancing alone. I mean, like this. Uh, this is again one of the reasons why I keep, like I feel like the master and this are kind of like these are these two movies are in love with each other in terms of the way they play with space and time. That first of all, that New Year's scene, it has like look at the little things that are in that little carnival. You have like uh, cowboys and Indians, rocket, you have a rocket, rocket ship. ship. Yeah, yep. you have like uh, a big elephant from India. There is this sense that you know PTA is always playing with this idea of t- time collapsing or the you know like the past living within the present. That was a big theme in the Master in terms of past lives. That whole sure. religion that the sure God was preaching. And the single most breathtaking moment in any of his films, I get chills even when I describe it. I'll yeah. try and describe it in such a way that it works that same way for your listeners. <laughs> but it was actually the moment that turned me around on him. It was one edit, and I wrote about it in Cinemascope when we did our fifty direct. 50 best directors under 50. And I wrote... This Give me was the like movie. A, Let me just guess which one it is. Let it's, me see it's, if I can guess. It's in There Will Be Blood. Oh, the, um, when the kids drop down. Yeah. So, yeah. so it's... The kids, yeah. It's, and I wrote about it because we... I actually drew the PTA blurb and was very ambivalent about him. Like, you, you grew up watching movies in the 90s. He, he's, a, he's a big deal filmmaker. Right, but right. I resisted him. Mm-hmm. And I... In There Will Be Blood, so to describe it, it's um, H.W. and the girl who is... Um, 
growing up in little Boston who yeah. later he marries. I mean, I'm describing the, the moment where they decide yeah. to get married, but they're on this raised beam as children and they're playing and the camera's kind of tracking them. And it's a bit of a weird shot because H.W. is obviously important to the film, but he's not the protagonist. Right. And Daniel's really nowhere to be seen here. Yeah. I think he's off somewhere doing his job. And he, H.W., as a boy, drops off the platform and she drops after him and the cut is then her hand raising. Mm -hmm. So they drop. Yeah, so yeah. The, the movement of the shot is them jumping down. And then her hand is coming up with a wedding ring on it. Yeah. And I thought, in its way, it's an emotional... It's, it, it's an emotional... More emotional version of the match cut in 2001. Yeah. I mean, it's less time being compressed and it's making a less gigantic statement. It's not saying, yeah. you know, a bone is becoming a spaceship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's saying that's time. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, so much gets skipped over. D Daniel Plainview's uh, incredible fortune and his dissolution. Mm. But World War One gets passed over. Right. The stock market crash gets passed over. And this movie that's taken its epic sweet time doing everything <laughs> has suddenly rushed, you know... 18 years into the future yeah. and I remembered thinking it, there's such showmanship in that but I f felt it yeah. it's emotional the feeling that you just lose time in your life and suddenly your children are getting married and suddenly you're old yeah. and so yeah the master and, and Phantom Thread and their treatment of time I think um, they, 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 they ripple out from that kind of tactic, mm -hmm. that little bit of compression. And I know exactly what you mean at the end of Phantom Thread. Suddenly, the movie feels like it's veering into this more metaphysical mm -hmm. realm. And we notice with that New Year's party, by the way, he's on the outside of it. That right, right. shot of him walking through the galley, sort of through the bleachers, mm -hmm. he's not down on the floor. He gets there. Yeah. But the image for me is of... Uh, Reynolds is someone who can't join in. Yeah. He can only really join in on his own terms. But that big, spectacular costume party is not his scene. Yeah. And it's crucial, yeah. I think, that it's a costume party and he's a designer who doesn't yeah. want to go. Well, I mean, in terms of that costume party, though, in terms of him not wanting to join in, I mean, and in terms of this whole, I mean, it's a New Year's party. Yeah. It's about time passing. Absolutely. It's a really good point. You know, like, so time is passing and yet, and you have all these different figures from different time zones collapsing in and then you see this New Year's party come back. Um, and in terms of time's passing, like, that's something that he fears. If you think about it, I mean, he's afraid of the curse of his mother. Yep. He's afraid of his of getting old, I guess, because when he when he feels like this woman has lasted too long, he needs to restart his and reboot his life or something, right? Like that that's, seems to be what he's doing every time he wants to change up women. And Vicky wants, like you said, wants to make it last forever. Vicky, I say Vicky, Alma. Alma, yeah. Um, so I mean, like, uh, I mean, I feel like there's more to parse there in terms of like his fear of time, or like his I, this whole idea of ghosts hovering over him, ghosts living around him. Yeah. Well, which brings us to what I guess, again, because this is a film that has less assertive... Sp like, I feel like in some ways the old PTA movies are highlight reels. Mm. And, you know, when Boogie Nights is on TV, you're like, okay, okay, I'm just going to watch till the pool shot. <laughs> then you're like, okay, okay, I'm just going to watch till uh, William H. Macy blows his brains out. And then you're like, yeah, oh, I'm yeah. just going to watch the, the Alfred Molina, Sister Christian scene. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's very much a set-piece filmmaker. Phantom Thread's a bit less like that, mm -hmm. but the one moment that is spectacular is the hallucination of the mother, mother uh, in the wedding dress. And as a piece of staging, it's so great because he, it, he lets the ghost and, and Alma occupy the same space. Mm -hmm. Alma crosses in front, yeah, yeah. and then after she crosses, as I recall, 
you get a couple of shot reverse shots, but then from da- from from um, Reynolds' point of view, the mother's gone and she's there. Yeah, I think I don't think it's a couple shot reverse. Shots. Is it I think one? He's looking at he's looking at the door. He's looking at his mother, yeah. and then Alma enters. Then you look back at him. And then the mother's gone, and Alma is and Alma's, there. And Alma's there. And that is also the most emotional scene in the movie. I mean, for me, like that's the sure. part where it's like, I mean, I feel like everything just comes. Like there was like that emo- wave, emotional wave flew over me. Well, and in you, that moment, well, right? and you, you get the feeling of what he's looking to replace, mm-hmm. and you, you realize that she has stage managed things so that <laughs> she can be this kind of hybrid mother, Cyril, yeah, Alma figure. I mean, the way that she's possessive and protective of him there is kind of funny and kind of monstrous yeah. and also kind of sad because again, she's she doesn't she, she wants to be there lying with him, mm-hmm. you know. And, and that's why her again, I I I don't want to repeat myself, but what her character ultimately wants is not crazier, but stranger and more troubling than I think even it seems. Mm-hmm. I think when you watch the movie the first time and you see her making him the omelet and him getting it and him being like, oh, you know, kiss me, my girl, before I'm sick again, you watch it and you go, oh, that's funny. Yeah. You know, monogamy is kind of poisonous. <laughs> it's a give and take. Yeah. You know, men kind of, certain men need to be slowed down. And that's all fine. Yeah. But when you really think about what Alma wants and maybe it's because of what she's scared is waiting for her outside the house of woodcock because right. she, she's not educated and she's poor we should explore that a little well or, or we're not sure and there's yeah. the, there's the ethnicity thing because yeah. it's, it's hinted at very strongly that she might be jewish especially mm-hmm. when the way that she reacts when the, uh, the jewish visas the jewish the visas Dominican thing selling the jewish visas you know and also the fact that this is post-war that this is post-war yeah so it may it may to some extent be a survival tactic mm-hmm but another point we just yeah, yeah. she has no parents and she has and she has no parents like I mean they're not at the wedding there's no mention yeah. Yeah. No, she, so. she, she, she I also like that in this movie where she's covetously and angrily looking at all the wedding dresses that are being made for other women yeah rich women which yeah. she's not I like that when she finally gets married it's in a kind of simple suit mm-hmm. you know he doesn't make her a, he doesn't give her mom's <laughs> wedding dress but but when you really think about what she wants it's troubling yeah well, it's finding a space in a home. Finding a space in a home. And it's certainly not a kind of doctrinaire yeah. uh, feminist reading. Yeah, yeah, no. Where you can sort of say, oh, well, this is a good movie. You know, well, it's, I, it's, I mean, it's the best version of Fifty Shades of Grey. It's like, that's yeah. what this is, right? I mean, you, you're yeah. talking about the submissiveness. She wants yeah. to be someone's, yeah. But, but you know, I had a friend say to me, she, she, she's one of my, my smartest friends, said, if she had poisoned him to death, Mm-hmm. This would win Best Picture. Ah, uh, yeah. Right? Yeah. And by the way, that is not, and she's not being, I, I, I find that a useful kind of snarkiness. She's not saying, oh, you know, if the movie was more feminist, it would somehow be worse, and then people would think it's better. She's no, not no. saying that at all. But in a year where, again, and I don't want to hijack this to talk shit about other movies that are nominated for Best Picture, but in a year where you have movies one of which I think is pretty good, like Get Out. Yeah. One of which I think is really awful, like Shape of Water. And then one of which I think is, is pretty mediocre, like The Post. Yeah. They all rep the correct position. Right, right, right. Right? And the thing about Phantom Thread is that I'm not sure it does. Or I, or, or I, think, or I think it's hard to determine if there's a position at, at all. Well, I think, you know, I mean, first of all, I, mean, I, I think I love Get Out a little more than you do. Or a lot more than you do, I like, maybe. I, yeah, I mean, you, like, yeah, we're both... I like, I, mean, I like Get Out a fair bit. I yeah. like it more than when I first saw it. it. Yeah. There's something fundamentally disappointing about the last 
10 or 15 minutes that I think Jordan Peele has even acknowledged where he mm-hmm. sort of said, I had a better ending. I just couldn't bring myself to, to, to do it. Right. But beyond that, it's a very good very, film. But I mean, like, when you compare, I mean, talk about those movies like Shape of Water and yeah. The Post, which all carve out a position of we're relevant. <laughs> you know, like that's what they, like they, they are like... Not only, we're, not only are we relevant, but they flatter. Well, yeah, they flat, but they are also they're they're wearing their relevance to the point that they're irrelevant. You know what I, I mean? Like, yeah. and whereas Phantom Thread and movies like Get Out, they're confronting you with the uncomfortable stuff, where and that's truly, I think, relevant, right? Like, sure, and 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 I wouldn't ask to pick or choose between them, I and they're different because mm. Anderson is also making a movie from a position of of industry. Uh, you know, renowned. He's he's a kind of royalty, and mm-hmm. so he's allowed to make something that, in some ways, is pretty solipsistic and and, and burrowed into itself. Right, right. I mean, Jordan Peele has to carve out a, a space for himself as an author, and he does it with a film that I think begins in the specific and then starts gesturing in a larger allegorical way. But you know, like I think if people wanted to look for relevance, like this kind of current, I mean, you look at Phantom Thread, you look at this, like we were already suggesting Alma's character, this yep. possibility that she's Jewish stuff. You can consider this as a Brexit movie. You know, like sure. in reaction to Brexit. I mean, actually, I did want to touch on this because a lot of people came out of Phantom Thread and they were like, "Well, you know, you—it's all about him, and you don't—you get no idea of who she is. She's not a character. She's just there for them." But that is the point. I mean, at one point in the movie, Alma says, "You have no idea what my life has been like," or like, you know, she said, like when the doctor asks her that, like says, "Oh, you'll have the time of your life. You don't know what my life has well, been." And that's why I, I agree, and that's why I think she is revealed and made interesting through action, mm-hmm. whereas he is ultimately revealed to be somewhat uninteresting. Yeah, but he's. he's He's, he's all details. He's, he, he's all details, but he's also but, at the beginning of the film, you feel you are set up and you're like, oh boy, this is a big name designer with this big staff and this big mm-hmm. house. I mean, boy, he must be interesting. Yeah, yeah. He drives out to the country in his car. Yeah. He takes her to the cottage. He talks about, you know, no one has tamed me. I'm a bachelor. <laughs> and as the movie goes on, you're like, you're not interesting. Yeah. You're this sort of vain, petty, supercilious baby who is propped up financially emotionally and sort of just you know in in day-to-day terms by 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 women by this big staff of women i don't think he has more than three conversations with men in the entire film he talks to the doctor he has barely talks to the doctor he has the one he has the one guy he takes out for dinner a couple times I can't remember who that the, the, that that guy who's always at dinner with them in the little corner booth, like a friend of theirs. Oh yeah, like, yeah, like, uh, probably the fucking accountant or yeah, something. Accountant. Yeah, accountant. And beyond that, aside from maybe incidental dialogue, yeah, you know, he talks to women. Mm-hmm. He talks to Cyril. Talks to his previous girlfriend. Yeah. He talks to the women who he's designing for. Yeah. Uh, he Which talks, is thank you and thank you and all that. You know, he talks to yeah. Alma, and then even the hostess. Oh, the clients. The clients, but then even the hostess at the Alpine ski party, who's mm-hmm. really racist and sort of anti-Semitic. I mean, he talks to her. Yeah, he doesn't talk to guys. And, you know, his authority over these, these, these women is obviously complicated by the fact that he's completely dependent on them and, and can't do anything without them. Yeah. So, you know, I think you can, because you said right off the top of this podcast, talk about a kind of, of toxic masculinity. But what I like is that that toxic masculinity is actually not made interesting. Mm-hmm. And by the end of the film, he's so boring. I mean, he doesn't even want to go out. <laughs> you know, one thing that I think is a bit misjudged maybe, uh-huh. is when they go on honeymoon yeah. and she's eating the toast and being loud and annoying, it yeah. goes back to his point of view and you're sort of like, you, you are annoyed along with him or you see that he's still annoyed. I kind of wish that wasn't there. I wish they had had a way to do that from her point of view and not 
his. Well, why do you necessarily see that? Because from his I point of view. Because I mean, that to me is once again. I mean, this movie just because seems, the seems to work on cycles. Like she yeah. goes back to annoying him. Like she goes back to like kind of like owning her space again, and I then just, he gets uncomfortable, and then it goes back to mushrooms. I, yeah, I just <laughs> felt that it's a sleight of hand that's not. It's not a completely like claustrophobic or limiting one. I mean, it's not a movie where the point of view in terms of the camera literally switches. I mm. mean, the cam it's an omniscient point of view. Yeah, yeah. But that first breakfast scene where she's being loud and mm -hmm. annoying, she's not really enough of a character yet in the film where you could sort of do anything but see it from how he sees it. Mm -hmm. By the end of the movie, you're still kind of seeing it how he sees it. And I wasn't sure about that because the audience is still laughing at her. But you there. also know now at this point that she has mastered the silence, like the buttering the toast silently. Yeah, and she's doing it loud anyway. Yeah, she's sure. <laughs> she's just like I'm gonna. You well, know. And, and that and that scene might be a bit of a clue towards you know ultimate. I mean, I love how I love how every encounter in the movie between mm -hmm. them that is significant in their relationship uh, revolves around food. Oh yeah. I mean the first thing. Well. Sorry, I gotta take one thing away. Yeah, that dress scene with the the drunk woman, like that's a. I was gonna get. That's a key. Yeah, I was yeah, gonna sorry. get to all that. Right, right, get well, to that. All I was gonna, yeah, but I mean, so the the, Every, the meeting is is she's a waitress. Yeah. The big fight is she makes him food. Yeah. And then at the end of the film, she's making him food again, exactly. but you know, it just like an omelet <laughs> in the kitchen. The most beautiful omelet. Most beautiful ever made. omelet ever made. Yeah. The dress scene, another scene I talked with my mom about. They're so turned on by this cruelty mm -hmm. to her. Yeah. And I think that their cruelty is kind of a snobbery, but I think that for her, she's also really, really kind of disgusted with herself or a version of of herself, the idea of being this kind of, you know, this, this arranged marriage, marriage for money, and, mm -hmm. and maybe a kind of cautionary thing. But they are totally turned on by humiliating mm -hmm. her. And stealing the dress back. I mean, they kiss really deeply yeah, after that. That's the first time we actually see, see them, them kiss. kiss yeah. yeah. So you know, there's something kind of a little, a little sinister and a little nasty yeah. there. But again, showing that they are, they they have this same drive to humiliate and and to yeah. control. But that's a scene that I feel like is complicated enough that there's so many different ways to read like why she's turned on by that moment or what. Sure. I mean, because it is. I mean, we don't know how the Jewish visa thing plays into her emotions there, but there's so many things going on in that yeah. moment, right? And that's a, that's the thing. He has these sequences where there's so, like, you know, like, the, the breakfast, they take their time, they take the, 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 like, you know, like, they move nice, like, they're slowly, and then you have that dress sequence where there's so many details flying at you, and as well as the climax where her monologue and all these images are flying at you, um, which is why you need to see his movies two to three to four times. Yeah, unless you're someone for whom it doesn't work at all the first time, in which right. case, you know, no one's putting a gun to your head. <laughs> and, and I should say, you know, that I've had interesting conversations with people who don't like the film at all. Mm -hmm. um, they think that the problem with it is that it's the comedy. Mm. That the comedy in some ways is is a is a distraction or a distancing technique. I mean, I mean, they're basically arguing for him to be a different filmmaker or an artist in that case. I mean, he right. is who he is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, but I think they're right that the comedy is obviously a, an integral part of the movie. And if you think that this is material that's better served by the kind of touch you have in a movie like Rebecca mm. or in a movie like The Red Shoes or in a movie like The Passionate Friends, yeah. that that irony, that humor, they see it as a kind of safeguard. It's like he's kind of afraid of the real feelings and the real workings of melodrama. That's the argument? Because I, 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 I actually think that it's a fair argument. But I think it's really emotional. I mean, the comedy rises out of the situations. It's not like they like take I, you out of those moments. No, I think it's emotional too. But I think that there is a kind of scrim of, 
of irony or a scrim of kind of naughtiness and mischievousness that mm. hangs over all of it. And for people who... Which you suggest when you talk about Reynolds being a total, like, nothing. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. But, 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 even just, but again, even just the name games or some of the mm. one-liners or, or whatever, they, I, I know people who find that to be... They, they, they think it limits it. I mean, mm. I think it's built into the material. The mm. same way that I think the master's really funny. Yeah. I mean what I when I wrote about it for this piece for Ringer, I was sort of trying to say like it's inherently funny. Yeah. It's not that he's piling comedy on top of serious material. The yeah. film is funny. It has a romantic comedy structure. Right. Which is it ends with a couple. Yeah. You know. But you know, and that that that's part of why I think he this is why he's one of my favorite filmmakers, because like all of these things, like remember you were talking earlier about how his cam like camera can be showy and stuff, right? But I never feel like his showiness ever distracts from the purpose of what he's doing, right? If you compare him to someone like Inuritu, right? He does have those flowy camera movements, and he could, he's already shown us that he could do those long takes right. like Inuritu does. But he will always limit it to what, the, I mean, now, not so, I, mean, I shouldn't say always, from the master going forward, his camera movements are limited to tell the story, but he could still, like, his movies still have a fluidity to him and an emotional core to him like they, they they do work in waves and they have that dreaminess to them which is still precise to what the movie's trying to do you know it's funny because you, 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 you keep bringing up those cursed syllables in your ritu I hate those four <laughs> syllables in, in that but, order but I mean but, no but I'm thinking about it I mean Amoris Peros in its way mm -hmm. was the kind of spectacular sort of debut that Anderson had made with stuff like exactly. Boogie Nights and they're kind of kindred spirits in the sense that at the beginning they were discussed in terms of their imitation and now they've both sort of become their own mm. thing. You Except know? that Inuritu is still the same thing but with a bigger budget. Well, I, well, I would say that, but that's not objectively true. <laughs> okay. What I think is true is that in a strange way Inuritu has also become the more accessible filmmaker. Mm. Despite the seeming disadvantages of beginning to work you know, as a foreign language filmmaker and the right. fact that you know, he, he has a lot of harshness. I mean, I wouldn't call Beautiful a, an, an overly accessible movie or even Babel in yeah. some ways is challenging. But a film like Birdman or a film like The Revenant makes far, far more of a box office and cultural impact than The Master or Inherent Vice. Yeah. There Will Be Blood yeah. is different. That was a big hit. Yeah, but I mean, that was also a big hit because of its big moments. Yeah. It had like the big guys was the voil and then it had that dramatic yeah. ending. It had all the things that But I but, but I think what you're saying about Inuritu and, and, and Anderson, I mean I, I'd never thought of those two in particular mm -hmm. side by side, because you tend to think of Anderson in terms of the filmmakers who he's coming after. Right. So there was the long conversation, is he Scorsese? Right, and right. then is he Altman? Right. And then is he Kubrick? And now is he Hitchcock? And again it's this kind of, you know, like name your white uh, North American Western film canon master <laughs> and, and people compare him to them. Yeah. But comparing him and in, him in Inuritu is kind of interesting. Yeah, well, because there's one that grew... Like, is, both of them are indebted to these old masters that you just referenced, sure. right? But I feel and, like and Anderson and, and, has grown into his own. Sure. He's taken that, that, that vocabulary and created his own language. And, in, and Inuritu's reference points in a movie like The Revenant are actually even more exalted than... Anderson's. Mm -hmm. I mean, when Inuritu makes The Revenant, he's chasing Tarkovsky and Malick. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's not more than Hitchcock, but I mean, that's a very art house set of, of, of influences. Yeah. And I would say that, you know, they are both a kind of assertive, muscular, directorist star filmmaking that mm -hmm. I think really touches the 
the little pleasure centers of you know young male cinephiles mm. and really sets off the alarm bells. Why do you say bells. young male cinephiles? Well, I have tended to find in my friendships and in mm. in in you know in in reading there is and I'm not trying to generalize and I'm I'm also not trying to get yeah. I'm also not trying to turn this podcast into something that people are going to get mad talking about. No, this, this is interesting because you're not the first person that I heard this from. There is there is there is less interest and excitement around PTA not none mm. and some of the best writing on him has been by female critics. Yeah. But there is somewhat less of a kind of deferential dominate me with your style kind of attitude than you have with 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 young men mm. I mean I go do lectures sometimes at, at high schools and universities in, in, in Ontario and wherever else because I have teachers who invite me and the the filmmaker who a lot of the adolescent guys I meet that they like the most is Anderson mm. and I'm not saying that to put him or them down. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, but and but he's, he's not. But he's not brought up by the girls I talk to in right. those classes. But here's my question though, because I know I've uh, we both. I mean, uh, a friend of yours who I've had this conversation with. Um, we were talking about this, and I was like, yeah, but those, that young men, that Kabbalah young men who prop up Anderson. At what point did they start? Did they prop up, prop him up? At what point did they stop propping it up? Because I feel like that that demographic you're thinking of, the same demographic that props up Christopher Nolan and Yuritu, I feel like those people fell off of Anderson after There Will Be Blood. Well, any, well anything we're saying now, we're, we're generalizing. We're, yeah, generalizing. We're, we're creating but, hypothetical people and right. hypothetical groups and hypothetical grouping, which is which has value up to a point sometimes. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you know, the fact is that the critical establishment still generally is quite male. Right. And the terms that movies are discussed on in terms of authorship and the auteur and control, I still think very much have a kind are, are coded in a kind of male value system, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, which I think Phantom Thread, again, makes fun mm-hmm. of because yeah. he just makes a couple of lines and sketches and then it's all female labor yeah. making the dresses while he's off being tortured somewhere. I mean, I think Phantom <laughs> Thread is making fun of that. Yeah. But um, I think that one of the legacies of the new American Hollywood and then the new, new American Hollywood in the late 90s, of mm-hmm. which Anderson's a charter member, along with all of our other, you know... But he was a late breaker. Slightly late breaker, yeah. but along with our other... Chosen people, mm-hmm. you know, your, your Finchers and your Wes Andersons Tarantino. and your, your Tarantino and all that. Yeah, and live later. You know, it. There's a redundancy there. As many, as virtuosic as each of them are, yeah. as good as their best films are, as many different kinds of skill sets and excellences as there are there, there's something monotonous and boring about the reception of it, about the promotion of it, about the veneration of it. Mm-hmm. And I say that as someone who, even as I say that, I am hugely drawn to certain things that a Fincher does Mm. that I think he does better than anyone else making American movies. Or there's certain things about a Linklater that I really like. So I'm not sort of trying to come out and be like, I'm above this this male directorial worship. I mean, I'm not. But I think Anderson is someone who has benefited from that in terms of his critical reputation right. and in terms of his fan base. And that's why he gets to make a movie like this, which is a fairly high-budgeted art house movie. Yes. Yeah. And and in terms of There Will Be Blood being the movie where people fell off, I mean... No, no, no. 
they were on board until there will be until blood. yeah but i mean even i mean there will be blood is and again this i'm, I'm using such imprecise terms but like that's a dorm room poster favorite mm-hmm. i don't hold that against it no not at all but it is the same way that fight club is yeah or the same way that you know kubrick is mm-hmm. you know? well but which kubrick well, Clockwork Orange. Right, right. Exactly. Which is, of course, referenced in Phantom Thread and the shots of them driving at night. That's <laughs> yeah. Clockwork Orange. I, I know. It, like, um, you're, 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 there's a couple of shots. Of the the, the right? shots where the two of them are driving yeah. super fast and yeah. the camera's looking through yeah. the front. You know, I was initially thinking that, and then, you know, before, as you came in here, I had Rebecca on the TV. Same, also in Rebecca. <laughs> yeah, so I was like, oh, fuck. Now, which one is the which one is he referencing? Or I guess he could reference both, right? But see, even what we're saying here, we're sort of talking about some of the terms on which this film is going to be appreciated and trumpeted, which is this referential mm. film student. And when you talk about who tends to think that way, not for reasons having to do with anything except access privilege, right. knowledge, yeah. education, you know. That's one of the things about Tarantino is that he he flatters the the viewing habits for the most part of, of, of you know, film students. Right, right. Which is why he got such great reviews in the first place. But that's not what his popular appeal is. I mean, a lot of the times when Tarantino makes movies that actually make 100 or $200 million, when people pay to go see Django, they don't know who Franco Nero is. Right, 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 exactly. They, they don't. Yeah. You no, know, yeah. and that's not their fault. Yeah. But so, so you know, Anderson dropping all that stuff in there, they're cues, they're signals, they're catnip yeah. to a certain uh, constituency to pick up on and in picking up on them sort of indicate that that's their value. Right, right. Their value is that they're there. Not really, well, what does he do with them? But that's the thing. I do, well, their value to who, though? Because I think that... Like from the master going forward, or even there will be from there will be blood. I don't think he just drops references to these movies just because he can. No, but I, I think, think he does stuff. But like I that. think that for the people who pick up on them, mm. there is a getting off on them that is right. part of why he does it. Right. And again, I'm not. This is not. I'm not. I'm not. Um, I'm not torpedoing him for it. But I'm saying that even when you adapt a Pynchon novel, mm. there is a group of people who are going to see that movie and enjoy it in a very superior way because they know who Thomas Pynchon is and they've read the book. Right. Well, I mean, and no, I get that. I get that most audiences, if you're not versed in film history, then I, I totally appreciate why you can enjoy a movie like Phantom Thread the way we enjoy Phantom Thread. But I mean, I, I just want to hold back on the, the idea that he's referencing them for the sake of like oh, I, getting us getting it. Because oh, for no, no, he's not doing it for the sake of us getting it. Right. But people get off for the sake of right. their own getting it. Right, right, right. Okay. And they wield that as a bludgeon against an audience, mm. whether you cut it along gender lines, class lines, mm. yeah. um, you know, tax bracket for education of film or whatever. They wield that kind of as a way of saying, well, if you don't get that, you can't get the film. And I think in the case of someone like Tarantino, that's just been proven wrong because whether people know what those references in Pulp Fiction are or not, the mm. film's a gigantic hit. Right, right, yeah, Anderson, yeah. I still think, speaks to a somewhat rarefied audience. And that's mm. why I think the negative reviews of him, whether it's negative, just talk with friends, or when you read critics who really go at him, like an Armand White, mm. um, who, as much as we want to make fun of Armand and discredit him, he often has very interesting things to say about class, both as portrayed in movies and mm. as enacted by the movie-going public. Yeah. When people say that Anderson is kind of a filmmaker for film critics, I don't disagree. For mm. one thing, I am a film critic who likes him a lot. Yeah. So how can I say no? No. 
But I mean, I also know that when I love, fell in love with the master and I decided to write about it, I wielded everything I had from my MA education in cinema studies, right? Which is probably the worth, most worth, I basically got that degree to write about the master, like, you know, which is probably the most useless thing in the world. But like, I get that, that it, it, he is a difficult, rarefy, but that is also why we are here to talk about the different things. Sure. It's not like Phantom Thread can't doesn't work outside of those references it is a very emotional very like you know that it is a movie that that's the thing about anderson which is like and and why i hold him above like tarantino if you don't get the tarantino references great he's entertaining if you don't get the uh, the references in an anderson movie i think there is mood moods like you know like there's emotions there's waves that you can ride on there's something that like just hits you on like you know on a more tangent like you know tactile level yeah and i think it's interesting for me my least favorite of his movies Mm -hmm. is the one that's most geared that way which is magnolia Mm. I think Magnolia is the equivalent of someone basically elbowing you in the ribs and sort of being like, it would be good for you to feel something now. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a brutalizing movie, and I think that... Can I, I, can I just admit something here? Yeah. When Magnolia came out, it was like my favorite movie ever. Sure. And bear, and bear in mind, like now, I, I go back and look at Magnolia, and I see the showing off, and I see how, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, how much it really wants to take over your emotions, but doesn't really have much intelligence to it behind that but at the time I just have to admit that before someone calls me out on that no, shit, the, 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 the best analyses of Magnolia I think are the people who say and this is very common I mean people say this all the time it's like he was worried he was never going to get another chance to make a movie with that level of control so he mm. tried to put it all in there yeah, yeah, yeah right like it's very undisciplined and I think for people who find that Anderson's emotional side, his his need to sort of generate empathy, create these broken characters and break them and then empathize with them and make you feel as broken as them and make you kind of want them to put themselves back together, that side of him, you know, Magnolia, I think, indulges it at great length mm-hmm. and at great uh, risk of seeming foolish. Mm-hmm. And I think that to some extent, the movie since then build in defense mechanisms against that. The casting of Sandler in Punch Drunk Love is very much a kind of defense mechanism. It is a way of sort of ensuring that you are not going to totally, completely, easily take seriously what you're watching. Mm. It also surprises you that you, if you like the film, that you do take him seriously, that you do feel something. But casting Sandler in that movie is pretty clever. It... There's a there's a there's a guardedness to it by putting him in there. I never thought of it that way. I, I mean, I just remember the stories of he just wanted to work with fucking Adam Sandler. Sure, yeah. because yeah. and again, you know, I mean, we, we were kind of doing now like a big grand unified PTA thing. But one of the things I like most about him, mm. I don't know the man personally at all. We're talking about Anderson. Or Anderson. Sandler? Anderson. Okay, yeah. I, I've, I've never met the guy, mm. but I find his fondness seemingly for sketch comedy. Dumb comedy. I mean, the mm. fact that he's married to Maya Rudolph, mm. the fact that he used to hang out backstage at SNL, yeah. all this sort of like silly viral video making of stuff in Boogie Nights. Like, I really like that. Yeah. Well, and it makes sense it in does. a weird way for how he makes his movies. There is a physical comedy yeah. and there, like the physicality of his movies. Like, in that, that connection, as weird as it sounds, as, or as distant as those types of movies seem, it makes sense. And somehow he's the one that makes sense of it. Yeah. I find that really leavens, not that people who are comedians can't be pretentious, of course, right. but it really leavens against the, um, the idea of this kind of, you know, overweening fancy artist, right, you right. know, that he has a kind of a, a, kind of a goofball sensibility. It, it certainly helps him in interviews because... 
you know, in interviews, he comes off as really kind of, especially now, comes off as really kind of disarming, and he doesn't, mm-hmm. you know, he's, he, he talks very practically. I mean, he admits to being interested in history, and he admits to, yeah. to, to, to knowing about films and stuff, but you'll never catch him sort of saying, like, Phantom Thread's an important movie about relationships. And oh, this no, is, no. You know, I mean, he, he doesn't talk that way. No. And he's a bit less of a gearhead and a bit less of a cold fish than a David Fincher, who, while nice and funny, really does give you the sense in interviews that he's, like, the master you know well when you say gearhead though because I mean Anderson does love talking about different cameras he, and different like audio things he, and shit like he that. does although not yeah. as not as I mean no one likes talking about this stuff as much as David Fincher oh I mean, okay he's, <laughs> he's, 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 he's I've never actually listened to a David Fincher interview he's great he's great to listen to because if you want to hear about you know yeah. How he how he works with technology he he just goes yeah. on oh, and Nolan's the Nolan's the same, but again we're we're back in the language of these kinds which is fine I mean there's mm. a podcast on Phantom Thread yeah, yeah but you know back in the language of these kinds of kind of alpha male even if they're nerds yeah. or even if they're kind of fancy yeah. these kind of alpha male control freak directors mm-hmm. maybe what I find so appealing about Phantom Thread is that it. It recognizes that character type, mm-hmm. recognizes it from the inside out. Yeah. It doesn't take it at face value. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it sort of demolishes it. Yeah. Uh, I want to, I mean, I just want to say, though, like, in terms of the, 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 what we're generalizing in terms of a male audience reacting to this type of sure, thing. Sure, yeah. I don't know if I'm... I mean, I, I, I'm going to name drop right now because the only women I know who are film critics is Kiva, who I know is an Anderson fan. Yeah, Alicia. Although, although I don't know if Kiva's seen Phantom Thread. Not Phantom Thread, but at least we know that she was on board with the Master and Inherent Vice and stuff, right? So that's why um, I don't know. And like Alicia and uh, I can't remember. But like, there's like the, I've never met a woman who's watched those movies that hated on those movies uh, more so than a general public. Oh, I have, audience. but I have, but I've also met men who've hated on those movies. Exactly. And I know women who who like the movies. I'm just I, I guess yeah. I guess what I'm speaking to is that also the system of like yeah we prop up male filmmakers and you're saying the Phantom Thread, of course, Alicia. Acknowledges that, but also the fact that okay, I mean, let's talk about it because the mic is still on and we're still talking. It's interesting. There will be blood has no women, right? I mean, not significantly. Yeah, yeah, right? no. And that's something. When Stephanie Zakarik reviewed the film, she's like, "That's a big fault." Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, how unimaginative can a movie be to have no female characters? I mean, how can you universalize about American experience, even frontier experience yeah, and, yeah. and Western experience without that? And, you know, it's a movie where I think women are excluded from the decision-making process and from the, the politic and the social politic of it because of the time, yeah. right? The master is filled with women, but they're largely objects of desire for Freddy, mm-hmm. which is not exactly... Except for Amy Adams. Except for Amy Adams, yeah. who's the power, but even that's a kind of a scary yeah. stereotype. I mean, I adore the master, but it's not exactly a movie that resonates with female consciousness. Right, right, right. In Punch Drunk Love, the Emily Watson character is basically there to rescue Sandler. It's a kind of retrograde romantic comedy. She's defined by Shelley Duvall as olive oil singing, He Needs Me, Mm. which could actually be the theme song of Phantom Thread, quite (laughs) frankly. You could replace Johnny Greenwood's score with Shelley Duvall going, He needs me, he needs me. You'd be like, well, he does. Uh, And then in Inherent Vice, it's like, Dream Girl disappears, comes back, basically strips down, offers herself to him both as like a real and imagined fantasy object and they drive off into the sunset together. These are to some extent retrograde depictions of women. To say nothing of the fact that Boogie Nights is a movie that romanticizes porn. Right, right, right. Deeply romanticizes, sentimentalizes porn. Yeah, some people get the shit kicked out of them and yeah, it gets a little bit ugly, but like it's like 
you know, if you're a porn star over 30, your mom. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's 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 kind of gross. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Magnolia is so about guys, yeah. fathers oh, and sons. And the women are sort of there to have these moments of hysteria or to be rescued, like mm-hmm. Laura Walter's character who needs John C. Riley as a cop and as a, a man mm. to sort of try and get her out of this, this coke spiral. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I'm not trying to demolish Anderson and call him a sexist filmmaker. That's not what I mean at all. No, no, no. But Phantom Thread is interesting because finally, much in the same way that I think Eyes Wide Shut truly answers, truly answers some of the misogyny and some of the sexism of Kubrick's other work by, mm. there's that shot in Eyes Wide Shut, I wrote about it, and other people have written about it, where Cruz is like, oh, women don't think that way, and Kidman laughs at him, and she doesn't just laugh at him. Like, <laughs> it's the only time in the movie that you have a handheld camera, yeah, so yeah. the camera actually shakes with laughter as she does. She bends over laughing, and the shot bends over with her. Uh, the whole rest of that movie is Steadicam, Except for the scene where they're stoned and, and she's laughing at him. Yeah. I mean, in that yeah. scene, the, the 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 woman laughing at him and the way that the whole that whole movie is basically like sexually accessible women for him who he can't consummate with because ultimately he's this terrified, timid person who just yeah. doesn't want his wife to, to to leave him or to leave his wife. I think that movie answers a lot of it. Right, right. I think Nicole Kidman and Eyes Wide Shut. I mean, I'm, again, this is going off topic, but no, but it's relevant. I don't know. If you were to put together the dialogue of every female character in every Kubrick movie other than Lolita mm. and The Shining, I think Nicole Kidman has more lines. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And very much drives the point of view of that movie. Uh, she, she turns the whole movie. She makes the second half of the movie happen right, right. because of the insecurity that she fosters in Cruise. All of which is to say that in Phantom Thread, Anderson has finally imagined a female consciousness as the main character. Right. And there's going to be some people, men or women or both, who are going to be like, well, that's not progress. That's a man writing a female character. Who cares? Right. I happen to think she's a very interesting character. No, I think And I think as an act of imagination on his part, it works yeah, really well. You know, you mentioned um, how Inherent Vice is not, is, you don't, don't think it's perfect, right? Uh, I, when we first came out of this movie, you were contemplating Phantom Thread being his best like Paul Thomas Anderson's best, and right? I, and I, I'm still thinking about you're it. You're still thinking it. Well, you're still thinking about it, right? Because right now, I mean, I'm still, like, not sure. Not because... I think his craft is perfection here, almost, or near perfect. I would near. say that his craft is, like... I mean, Pretty he's close. constantly growing, yeah. But at the same time, I think there's an unwieldiness to Inherent Vice that I love so much that it's... I mean, and, and even with The Master, I don't think it's necessarily perfect, but I think it's so big and goes so... Uh, there's, there's aspects to it that still make me love it more. Even if, like, but not to say that I don't love in Phantom Thread. I think Phantom Thread is right up close to those movies. But, I mean, that's where I'm feeling, you know? Like, I, I still think Mas- the Master and Heron Vice are my favorites of his. Right. But Phantom Thread is real close. I don't know if you figured it out yet. I, I'm, it's both irresistible to do this and also something that maybe should be resisted. Right, Because, exactly. you know, yeah. the, the language of ranking and lists is very <laughs> seductive. What I would say for me is that I resisted this particular filmmaker very hard as a matter of principle until my early 20s. Yeah. As a teenager, I resisted him, I think, because I didn't like that my friends were so mm. seduced. And I may have probably not known as much what I was talking about then, because I'm fucking 18 years yeah. old. Now. You know, I mean, I would say to my friends, like, you know, oh, he's not as good as Altman. I'm like, well, yeah. that's just received wisdom for me. Yeah. Now that I've kind of grown up with him and grown up with the films, I value his skills and his sensibility very highly. Mm. I think each of the last four movies, There Will Be Blood, Master, Inherent Vice, and this, 
rank high within the years that they're made. They are certainly films to be reckoned with. But I must say that the one that I carry around with me and think about all the time is The Master. And I have not spent enough time yet with Phantom Thread to see if it'll be there. Mm -hmm. In the end, I think that it may just be that the movies or the cultural reference points that The Master has, just for me personally, are more fascinating. I think that's what it is. The, The... the religious angle of it. The religious angle, the psychotherapeutic angle, mm-hmm. and the idea of John Huston's film Let There Be Light and the military hospital. Yeah. The weird way that that also intersects with the Manchurian Candidate mm-hmm. and just trauma of wartime. And just the, the absolute ruin of Phoenix's acting and the way that that evokes Montgomery Clift and to some extent evokes yeah. James Dean and this kind of male potency that's there because he's this sexually potent character but he's just so screwed up on the on on on, on top yeah, yeah you know yeah. and and such and, and and also i'll always love the it, it, it for being a film as pta uh, confirmed on twitter a film that builds a, a large and significant set piece out of the lil john and the east side boys uh, <laughs> song you were i remember your your review of it back in 2012 oh, I you, said made, a, you mentioned it yeah. back then I mean, that was the first mention I, so that I, was the first time i heard that comparison so right? i doubt he's listening to this podcast but uh, you, you know simon ennis right uh, no. So Simon no. Ennis is a... Simon, if you've made it an hour into this podcast, I'm going to tell a story about you. He's a good friend of mine. He's a filmmaker, documentary filmmaker. Uh-huh. And he was helping a, a, a director make a documentary about Robert Altman, which Anderson was interviewed for. They went to Los Angeles. Simon was, was helping out on the movie. And I said to him before he went, Simon's a good friend. I'm like, yeah. okay. So you guys are interviewing Anderson. I know that you're talking about Robert Altman and, um, you know, whatever. Ask him this for me. <laughs> And he's like, it's a stupid question. I'm like, well, it is a stupid question, but but what's the worst that can happen? If it's a stupid question, you say, my stupid friend in Toronto who's a stupid film critic has a dumb question for you, Paul. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, he'll probably be really nice and laugh it off and sort of say, oh, that's funny, ha Yeah. And, you know, but if I'm right... I mean, I'm trying, I mean, I mean, hundreds of people have made this point. There's a whole YouTube video that yeah. someone did. I, but I mean, that YouTube video after when you link to it, like, the, well, there's it was two, only like how many views? Well, on there, it? well, there's another one that I didn't use that has more views because it's oh. the whole song. Oh, just okay, like, yeah. But, but anyway, I'm like, yeah. but, 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 but if I'm right, if you say, hey, hey, my friend, my friend wanted to know if you wrote that after listening to Get Low, and he's like, oh my god, I did. I'm like, you, you get to, you get to be the deliverer <laughs> of this like ridiculously uh, yeah. apt. Anyway, I mean, I'm, I'm being somewhat silly when I say that. That's why I like um, that, that, that. That's why I like the master. I think the master is a film that um, I will be trying to watch and think about and explain to other people and myself and reckon with for a long time, mm-hmm. which makes it a kind of a, which makes it a kind of a classic. Yeah. And you know, so that's five years old, and I'm pretty sure about it in that sense. So let's see Phantom Thread in a few years if it, if it if it sticks around that way. Yeah. It certainly it certainly is not going to win. The Oscar for Best Picture, which is nobody which, which is I, mean, I didn't even see it getting these much, this many no. directors. I mean, sorry, this many nominations. No, make, which but. which which I think speaks to the fact that even if people don't know what to make of it, they know that the craft is there. Mm-hmm. But I guess when there will be blood lost to the country no for lost to country for old men, you sort of felt like, well, now it still will be a 
a classic, even if it doesn't win Best Picture. It has, There Will Be Blood, has this kind of long, clean, American epic mm-hmm. feeling to it. Phantom Thread, I think, in losing Best Picture, probably will be remembered in the in a big way outside of the PTA cult or outside of film critical culture as kind of you like... You think it will be remembered in a big way? No, I think it will be remembered kind of anecdotally as a, as a footnote Best Picture... Right, exactly. As, as a footnote Best Picture nominee, which, again, I mean, in the single fucking stupidest... Stupid! I, I, we're now late enough in the podcast that I'm going to be mean. Yeah. Uh, you know that guy Noah Berlatsky who wrote about the film. I mean, his argument with the oh, film was that is that the one where he says that this movie is toxic masculinity yeah. instead of about it. But but, yeah. you know, but instead of going into that, because again, it's just going to make me want to gouge my eyes out uh-huh. with this fork here on your table. <laughs> uh, it was the way that then if people were sort of talking to him on Twitter. He's like, well, you know, it's kind of like a Merchant Ivory movie, and I'm like. Oh, I saw that. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, in a way, you're insulting Merchant <laughs> Ivory because that's not the kind of movies that that team, yeah. you know, uh, Ismail Merchant and James Ivory and Ruth Prowler, Jala, the, that's the writer. That's out of Africa and stuff? No. Oh, well, like, like, yeah, uh, the, the, the Bustonians in A Room with a View and yeah. Howard's End and, and Remains of the Day. Like, those are all actually interesting movies with their own very valid uh, their, their aesthetic, aesthetic and, and, yeah. and, and style. But it's, it's, it's just kind of so thoughtless. And yet when he said it, I sort of thought, but you know what? There's a billion people watching the Oscars. 99.7% of those billion people will not have seen Phantom Thread. <laughs> yeah. And they'll look at the clip of Daniel Day-Lewis in his high pants and his shirt sleeves. <laughs> and and they'll me. see the, 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 the English coast. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, maybe some dresses. And they'll be like, that looks like a Merchant Ivory movie. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's fucking... Dumb as the comparison is, yeah. it's speaking to the rest it's of speaking, the Oscar audience. Well, speaking, well, and again, it's not about the Oscar audience no, I know, being but like, dumb. It's just, that but it's, I mean, the thing is, the Oscar audience, like this, is the most audience that would have ever heard. I mean, if it wasn't nominated for all those Oscars, this movie would have been done after three, like you know, those three theaters that it's playing in in yeah. Toronto, yeah. and it, you know, it wouldn't have no, like nobody else I know has heard about that movie yeah. except for like me yelling about it, right? So now all of a sudden, the wider audience is gonna see this movie, and like you're saying, they're gonna consider it a Merchant Ivory movie based on clips and stuff. Well, I mean, well, I mean, maybe, but I mean, also just to go back to the you, know, you talked about the film class I teach, mm. I actually use the master twice. I also use it as an example of how per screen average when that movie came out, yeah. it was a record setter. Right. And it's a record that keeps getting broken, but it doesn't get broken by films like Avatar or The Avengers. It keeps yeah. getting broken by films by Wes Anderson or Paul Thomas Anderson because in certain cities, and this again is why as much as you were resisting the idea of sort of trying to like, oh, there's a certain kind of audience that's flattered by this kind of movie making, you look at where those per screen records are being set. Right. They're being set in New York. I guarantee you, if you look at the demographics of that audience, yeah. along lines of class, maybe not gender, yeah. but along lines of class, along lines of ethnicity, <laughs> along lines of disposable income, yeah. it is speaking to a rarefied yeah. section, of, section of the population. And uh, look, I totally agree with that. I totally agree that that is most of the people I see when I go to these theaters and go to these movies. But then you do have to remember that there is also someone like me out there who's discovering Paul Thomas Anderson. Sure. You know, because I didn't come from those class lines and no. stuff like that, right? No. So it's like... Um, no, and I'm, and I'm, not saying that if yeah. you're, I'm not saying that if you're white and go to film school, you're given the Paul Thomas Anderson card, <laughs> yeah, yeah, card yeah, and yeah. you have to... And no, I mean, and, and I'm not discrediting what yeah. you're saying. We know that... The, I, I do totally agree that there is this rarefied audience that will go for these types of filmmakers but, and films. But right? that's but, why, again, because I mean, I'm sure we should, I'm sure we should round this off hmm. and... But since we've sort of moved on to the Oscars and these categories and things, I've thought a little bit about 
what's nominated and what might win and what might not. I mean, I'm pretty sure that the the fish movie is going to win. <laughs> uh, but I thought about Get Out, and I thought that of all the movies nominated for for Best Picture, and I'm not going to do the lame thing of like, oh my god, I was a white critic and I saw it with an audience and, like cheering. I mean, I don't like that at all. Yeah. I was thinking that Get Out is arguably the only one of those movies that I think. Um, how am I going to say this? It's the only one of those movies where I don't think that the urgency and the energy of it is something that you have to make an argument for. Mm-hmm. You, don't, you don't have to sort of frame it and sort of be like, well, you know, from this angle, this is an interesting movie. You didn't have to do what we just did for the last hour and a half no. on Phantom Thread no. for Get Out. Yeah. I, think, I think that with Get Out, it's very, very obvious from the first frame of that movie where <laughs> the urgency and where the sense of excitement and the sense of dread in that movie comes from. Mm-hmm. And kudos to, to, to Jordan Peele because there's a savvy there that goes beyond filmmaking intelligence or, or goes beyond how well-written or not well-written the movie is. Like mm-hmm. That is a cultural moment that he measured and found and tapped into and has kind of defined. And even if I don't know that, that Get Out's the best film on that list for me, yeah. I think it would be a shame if it doesn't end up being the film of the year best picture wise because none of those other movies have a claim to it no I think The Shape of Water has a claim to it in a completely jerry-rigged artificial way it's trying to do the same thing and I think it's doing it far far less honestly well it's uh, I mean yeah it's schematic it's like uh, schematic and safe like you said flattering flattering is a a great word for that and flattering whereas I think Get Out sort of Actually, no, you had a great Twitter conversation with, um, was it the Nick Pickerton about how the fucking allegory doesn't even work? Cause well, she's... no, Nick's, <laughs> Nick's, Nick's tweet is the best where he's like, I've heard that, you know, the fish fucking is a metaphor for interracial desire, but as both interracial desire and yeah. same sex desire exist in this film's universe, yeah. it's probably not a metaphor for, 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 <laughs> for interracial. And I would go further in to say that there is space in the way that movie is told to sort of suggest that because she's a foundling and an orphan and that she yeah. has these scars, you know, that she's actually just like he is, you know, yeah. they're, 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 they're actually kind of very close. Yeah. What is it he does? He touches her gills and they open up or some shit like that? Yeah, yeah. And, there, and, and again, if we're talking about this as an essay, it's nice that the, 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 the mute character, the scars that sort of take away her, her agency save her, and he also cuts Michael Shannon's throat, which means the voice that he's been screaming at everybody is yeah. kind of lost. When you say it that way, you sort of find yourself thinking, well, maybe this is a kind of intelligent movie, but then there's 95 examples to the contrary of that, <laughs> you know, spread out throughout the film's running time that, yeah. that, we, don't have to, um, that, that we don't have to get into. But I, I guess, you know, I, I was also very happy to see Phantom Thread get these nominations, but I was happy just in that kind of rooting interest, like, yay, I like this movie, mm. in terms of something that I think actually will strike a chord with, you know, the movie-going public at large. I yeah. mean, no. Well, you know what, though? I take satisfaction that even if they don't like it, they gave it a try, they ran into it, they, well, it'll, they'll, you know, even if they, they came out baffled by it and didn't like it, they're still going to be thinking about it. No matter what they like, I mean, if you can't wrap your head up around that movie, which is like, you know, Shape of Water, you could digest it and you're going to forget about it and that's it, right? But I feel like Phantom Threat, even if you didn't give a shit about it, it's still going to linger with you. And I think that's great. Yeah, and you know, again, uh, you know, fun, <laughs> fun, fun movie to talk about because between my wife and my mom and now you, mm-hmm. the holy trinity of my Phantom Thread, <laughs> these are, those are the three longest conversations I've had about the Phantom Thread, they're, 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 they're very rewarding. Yeah. And, uh, you yeah, know, really enjoyed 
really enjoyed having this chat. Hopefully, you will keep running into movies that are long enough to sustain this kind of a <laughs> no. This, well, this kind of a discussion. Let me do the wrap up here because yeah. <laughs> your wrap up. Okay. Thanks for listening. That was me and Adam Naiman on Phantom Thread, which you absolutely should see right away, whether or not you love it as much as we will or we did. Um, and uh, yeah. And uh, yeah, no, thank you very much for having me on. Thanks for coming, dude. Let's have another scotch. <laughs> Go visit www.doc.com.